This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you head down to downtown Hamilton tomorrow night, there will be a lot of people around. Same on Saturday, same on Sunday. This is the weekend of Supercrawl. It is one of the big, significant, successful events that we have in the city. And the guy who, well, there are other people who participate, but the guy who's kind of at the top of the food chain here, who oversees it, who makes it go, is a guy named Tim Potasek, who joins us now. Tim, how are you? Tim, are you there? Oh, there we go. How are you? Yeah, are you there? I, I am I am here. Uh, thanks for doing this tonight. I appreciate you taking some time. I know you're busy. Uh, yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I love, uh, I love talking to you. This, um, this does have to be now, I was trying to think as I was sitting down today to start, uh, preparing a little bit, this has to be the, if not the biggest event in the city now, annually, one of them. I can't think of another one that's bigger. Is there one? Uh, you know, well, respectfully, I'll say no. <laughs> no, I, but I mean, we can have events. There will be things that go on once in a while, like the Junos we had, but that you were involved in. But on a year-to-year basis, there's nothing that's bigger than this, is there? I don't think so. So let's go back for a second, because when when something like this gets to be this big, it doesn't always start from these kind of massive, uh, this kind of a massive place. Where did where did Supercrawl get its start? How did it begin? Uh, just uh, an experiment, really, an idea based around a whole bunch of community members coming together to try and do something maybe a little bit bigger. Um, and, it, and it stemmed from a street closure, you know, like trying to do something cool on the street, close the street. Um, you know, part of the concept came back from, you know, me. I've got lucky enough to travel a lot. And I, uh, you know, many years before Supercrawl sort of happened, the first one happened, I was in New York on a weekend and uh, stumbled across a street festival that was going on that was 21 blocks long in Manhattan. Wow. And and it dawned on me as I was walking, like seemingly in eternity with all this stuff happening on the street, um, that, like, why is this not happening on a major street in Hamilton? It kind of set a seed, put a seed in my mind. And then as Art Crawl started to develop, and it, it seemed like a natural fit to try to do something on James Street. It seemed like the perfect street to do uh, a street closure and add some music to what was already happening. Did it seem, though, at that moment when you're in Manhattan and you're walking, because, I mean, New York is a big city, for those who don't know. I, I'm being facetious, everyone knows. But, I mean, it's a huge city with a lot of people. When you looked at that, did it honestly register in your mind that something like this, not to that level, but something like this could work here? Or was it, gee, I wonder if it could work here? Oh, I wonder, for sure. Like, there was no utmost confidence in anything, like, being able to succeed, but, you know, thinking that you could try on a small scale and see what you could build and see what could happen, and, you know, it's it's all, uh, like I said, right from the start, it was just an experiment to see if we could build something a little bit bigger than what that was already happening, this, like, groundswell community excitement that was happening. It was like, well, maybe we can add to it. Maybe we can raise awareness so that this thing gets bigger and, you know, um, maybe our crawl will get bigger because of it. And that was it. It was just sort of, let's just try it. And that was expectations. That was just 2009, right? Yeah. So it's not that long ago that that you've come from that to this. So back then, the first one, remind us, because I can't even remember, how big was the first one? Uh, 3,000 people. uh, It rained. uh, (laughs) It rained a lot. Of course it did. It had to. Um, and it was in October at that time and it was just the Friday night, like we closed the street for Friday and built a stage in the afternoon and 
um, put a stage, a little tented stage on the street and invited some local artists and a couple from out of town and, and just tried to do a little street party. And, uh, you know, people rallied around it. It was amazing. Like that success was gigantic at the time. Like it was just like, oh my God, that was amazing. Um, and, but that's kind of where it so, sort of stopped at the, at that moment. It was like, that was great. Okay. On to, on to business. <laughs> that just cost us a lot of money. <laughs> to, to experiment to do a you know street uh, street party basically and uh and great let's uh, maybe we'll revisit that down the road and we sort of parked it for a while and then um brought brought it back to the community to say you know you know is this something that we should recreate and do bigger and um is the community behind it and they were wholeheartedly so we sort of took the took the ball and, and ran with it developed the not-for-profit like the super crawl not-for-profit company that uh oversees the festival and then started to put together, you know, real concrete sort of plans on how to build it, move it forward, still not knowing at all how big it could be. Um, it was all just still really experimentation, but modest experimentation and trying to do something for the community. I'm wondering if it hadn't been raining a lot that time, if it would have actually gone ahead again, because when when it's the crappy weather, you can then finish and say, okay, we lost money, we got three thousand people. It wasn't enormous, but you know there was re- there were reasons for that. If it had been great weather and you had got three thousand people and it wasn't as huge, do you think there's a chance you might have said, yeah, you know, it just didn't catch? Uh, no, no, that would have been a success either way. Okay, <laughs> okay, um, you know, like what, what our gauge was, you know, there was on a monthly art crawl at that time, you know, there's maybe 200 people kind of coming out. And our goal was, you know, our goal was let's double art crawl. You know, let's try and get like four or 500 people out. So our expectations were quite low. And, um, you know, we were just hoping for the best, really. And what were the numbers last year then? So seven, eight years later, what were the numbers you were pulling out? Oh, like a, we're 150, 160,000 people now. That's, I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, is it shocking to you that it's grown that fast? Try not to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, I mean, I think about it, but uh, yeah, it is shocking and and uh, humbling, and and uh, you know, we're all very proud of what we've been able to accomplish, and we're proud of our city for being able to support us and the community for coming out and continuing to support, you know, what it is that we're we're trying to deliver. It's really, uh, it really feels great. Do you ha- do you ever get that feeling though, as as the year is going on, and maybe especially now that you're close, that this is kind of a monster that's almost growing out of control. Like it's getting so big that man, how do we deal with this? Uh, definitely, as you grow, you, there's other things that come to mind and things you have to deal with and issues you have to plan for. But it's all part of the fun. I mean, we really, we really enjoy what we do, and we're trying to do the best, biggest thing we can. Uh, you know, within, and we're trying to keep it. You know, we're not trying to grow some gigantic monster. Like that's not the intention. The intention is to scalably grow. Uh, and add components that will turn other people on to want to come. Talking to Tim Potasik of uh, of Supercrawl, um, do we have any way of knowing what of the, say that 150,000? Do we have any way of knowing what percentage of that comes from out of town? Uh, yeah, actually, we do know that there's a fair amount of people that uh, come from out of town. It's uh, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. To be honest, it's somewhere. Um, in around, uh, 25 to 30% of the people are out of towners. And it's a, it's a combination of different spots, like from, you know, some are from, uh, 50 kilometers away, a hundred kilometers away, some are from thousands of kilometers away. So 
we do surveys every year and tally up that information. And what we have found is that, you know, I know the numbers off the top of my head as far as what we're drawing from a Toronto perspective, and we've been pretty consistent with drawing, um, you know, 9 to 10% of the people that are coming to the festival are Torontonians. That, no, that I think is that's cool. huge. Yeah, no, that's that's huge. And I'm guessing then that when you have now a, a, a an event that is this large, that this size and this success and this buzz that comes around something like this has to make it easier when you call up a band now and say, "Hey, would you like to play Supercrawl?" Because they now you don't have to explain what it's all about. Surely they already know what it's about, and surely that's a huge selling feature to say, "Yeah, we got 150,000 people in the area coming down to watch." Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely different. The first three, four years were, you know, all challenging, getting people away to call in favors and get people to believe in what we were doing. And then quickly the word, you know, did finally spread. And it's been a turning point for sure. There's definitely, I get calls from lots of agents now wanting our, their artists to play Supercrawl. It's an important, you know, tour stop now, which is something we had always hoped. But it's, you know, it's important on some level, but we're, again, it's not, um, you know, we're not at the level of, some of the, you know, internationally recognized festivals that, you know, I'd hope at some point maybe we can be at that level where, you know, people that want to play Bonnaroo or uh, Lollapalooza or something like that, you know, want to play Supercrawl. Like that would be, that would be amazing to be a festival at that, uh, be recognized at that kind of level. No, absolutely. Was there, just before we move on, was there in the years that this happened and as it was building, was there a moment, was there a band, was there a show, was there something that you really look at and you say, that's the moment we really took off, that's the moment we turned a corner here? Mm, I think so. Like when we asked our friends in Broken Social Scene to play and they said yes, and they played for less than they should have, um, that was a that was a pretty critical turning point in like just, you know, sort of the music cool factor of what we were doing and what we were trying to uh, promote here. Uh, it's not like it was any different than what we had been doing up until that point, but they were sort of a band that uh, helped, honestly, helped elevate us on some level as far as like putting us on the radar of the performance and the and the stuff that we were booking for the festival. So that was pretty critical. But you know, every year there's been a band that. I love and has really done it, you know, for us or, or uh, you know, sort of changed the tone of the festival. So we always try to bring all these new, interesting perspectives. And every year is a little bit different. Well, and I'll be honest, um, there will be a number of people, maybe a lot of people, I don't know, maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but there will be a fair number of people that will look down the lineup and won't recognize many of the bands that are playing. And I'm wondering, though, if that's, Tim, if that is part of the point, that not only is this a chance to get people downtown to hear music, but it's a chance also for you to use this platform to expose people to a bunch of new bands that maybe they're not familiar with at this point. Totally the point. Um, You know, part of the greatest thing about music and art and art installation and fashion and all the things that you know we do down here is that we want people to stumble upon things they had no idea existed and they can turned on and be you know turn into lifelong fans of whatever they you know might have have seen so it's definitely part of it we want to be cutting edge but we also want to provide things that are you know uh, more contemporary i guess for lack of a better word that people can understand we want them to stumble upon those weird art pieces and be like, huh, scratch their head and either not get it or totally get it and stumble upon a band and be like, oh my God, who is this? And then realize, oh my God, that's a local band? I had no idea the depth of local talent was so deep. Um, so that's part of the beauty of what we do. 
I, I will say, I was looking through the list of your acts today, and I, I love one of the things you do. I, as I'm going through it, there's Dear Rouge, Defining Movement Dance, The Dirty Nil, Distography DJs, Egyptrix, E-May, Fast Romantics, Pete Fowler, Guilty Pleasure, Hamilton's Children Choir, Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra. Suddenly, in the middle of all this stuff that, again, a lot of people wouldn't know, there's the orchestra that's also going to be playing here. It, yeah, it's, it's, a real, it's a real oddity, almost, in a, in a way, that that would just suddenly pop up. Yeah, but they uh, they've been a supporter right from the start, and have um, you know, and they do contemporary style pieces where they're working with a you know local artist to do something really unique, and that's like a really every year it's very cool and very different than it was the year before. Uh, we love working with the HBO; they're tremendous people. When you go down there, and I know during the Junos, I know I bumped into you at uh, at a show one time during the Junos, and I don't think you'd slept in about six days, and you were a bit of an automaton at that point, waiting for it to end so you could actually go to bed. But I'm I'm wondering when you're wandering around this and it's all going on, do you look at, do you listen, do you watch the stage or do you watch the crowd? What are you looking at? <laughs> well, I try to get to see specific things that I really want to see. Uh, I miss. 90% of what it is I do want to see, unfortunately, depending on what's happening at the time. But, um, you know, I kind of watch everything. You know, I uh, cycle the festival so I can get around pretty quick and I try to get little, few little bits of as much stuff as I possibly can. And uh, really, it's just trying to take it in as a whole, which is pretty much impossible for anybody because it's just, uh, it's a bit, it, you can't see it all. Um, and that's part of the point, too. It's like you want people to, you know, make decisions and do certain things and, and witness certain things. And, um, that's what makes, that's what makes the fun of it. And that's what I think makes people come, you know, want to come back to, right? Because it's different every time. Well, and it is growing. I mean, I, I, people are, they, they probably recall, this is not just this weekend. I mean, it's, it's this weekend, but you've had a couple ticketed events before this. You guys were putting on the concert between the Mac and Ticats game on Labor Day Monday down at Tim Hortons Field. Is that something you could see that this becomes more than a weekend, that this becomes a couple of weekends or over an entire week, or are you sitting in the sweet spot right now in your mind? No, there's lots of things we want to do uh, for sure. And, you know, the ticketed shows are part of, um, you know, creating, you know, a, self, a little bit more of a self-sustaining revenue model for the, for the festival as well. So that's part of, you know, how the festival grows, um, doing things with the Ticats. We've been talking to them for a couple of years and we finally came across this, you know, thing that they were putting together and it was, a, it was, it felt like it was going to be a great fit. And it was, it was a huge success. We were really, really proud of what uh, happened on Monday down at the field. And so we, uh, you know, we experiment and we do these things and we really want to have the Supercrawl brand be far beyond, you know, the three days that we put the festival on on the weekend. We want it to mean more than that to the community. And so we're trying to build those components in slowly, slowly, but surely. Tim, you started this by saying that your inspiration in some way came from a 21-block party that you saw in Manhattan. Would it be? Would you want to be bigger than that? Would you want to say, you know what, we didn't know if we could do this? Could you imagine Hamilton going to the point where someday where it was 21, 22, 23 blocks through the city? Well, we're almost 20, or we're almost two kilometers, so I'd have to actually add up the blocks. Huh. But I, bet, I bet you we're getting pretty close um, with side streets and activations and those types of things. So, um, yeah, I, it could it could happen. It definitely could. We could eclipse it. Why not? We're better than New York. <laughs> we'll make that our new uh, our new tourism logo to put on the bumper stickers. We're better than New York. I like that. Uh, Tim Potasik from uh, Supercrawl. Tim, listen, I know you got a lot going on right now. I appreciate you taking all this time to talk to us. Thanks for doing this. 
Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You can uh, you can go and take part in Super Crawl again. It goes uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. There is no doubt, and I'm going to say this up front, and I don't think Tim would disagree with me. There's no doubt that everything on the list of things going on is not for everybody. Uh, that is that goes without saying, but that's kind of the point. This, this is not. This is not one of those things where you have to say, oh, you know what? There's a couple of bands I don't like, so I'm not going to go. It's a huge city event. And if you haven't ever taken the time to go down just to see what it's all about, one of the, especially one of the evenings in during the weekend, it is well worth at least wandering down. I mean, unless you really have some deep psychological fear of big crowds, it is well worth, cause, well worth going down because this is something that we do really well in this city. It's something really unique to this city. Now, if you if you are a Hamilton fan, if you like living in this city, if you like what this city has to offer, this is one of those things that even if you're not a fan, a super fan of indie music or or music that you, you know wouldn't necessarily be playing on your stereo at home, it is well worth taking a look at just for the experience. It really is. We don't have, we don't have, we, I mean, we have lots of great stuff around here. We don't have a lot of things like this where you look and you say, I don't think, well, there's definitely not a bigger event annually in Hamilton. I don't know that they have too many bigger, but there's some bigger events in Toronto, but not a ton, not over. I mean, it's, it, this is a very unique thing and it's, it's, it's something that I think Hamilton can be proud of. It's a very special thing in this city and give it a look, give it a look. I mean, you may love it. You may hate it. Whatever. Give it a look. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. This is a significant day because it was this day in 1998 that Mark McGuire finally hit his 62nd home run and passed Roger Maris to be the guy who hit the most home runs in a single season. Roger Maris had held the record since 1961 with 61, and suddenly here's Mark McGuire, and now he's the new home run champ. And it was the, it, honestly, with him and Sammy Sosa, it was the home run race that saved baseball coming out of the 94 strike. This, in 1998, this was the thing that turned the game around. But let me bring in Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, who we'd love to have on whenever we can possibly get him. Bubba, you were watching back in 98. I was watching back in 98. Everybody was watching back in 98 with this home run race. And yet when I go back and look at the video now, and I see Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and how they looked, how were we not suspicious that there might be maybe something going on with what these guys were putting in their soup? Well... I mean, mixed feelings there, uh, Scott, really. I mean, uh, we're at a time there with athletes and pro sports, not just baseball, where it it seemed like every athlete was getting into better shape, and and that was the idea. I mean, more dedication to working out. And and I still believe that that was going on, and yes, there was definitely something else being taken, but I do believe that athletes were working out more, they were were watching their diets more, and, and that was kind of the trend that we were seeing around pro sports, and certainly in golf, Tiger Woods certainly revolutionized that. The, the, the thought of the pot-bellied golfer certainly disappeared in a hurry, and we don't see that any longer. So I, I, don't, I don't think we were that mystified, and I think that was just kind of what was going on at the time. But if you had a guy show up at a Major League Baseball ballpark today, 
who look like Mark McGuire does, everybody would say, hmm, I'm well, suspicious of what you're well, doing. You know, you know, Scott, sorry, not to stop you right there, but remember, McGuire was a big specimen there. And even before the reported use of Andrelone or whatever he started using, he was a big guy anyway. So to think that a big guy started working out a little bit more wasn't totally out of the realm. Because remember, he was one of the more intimidating guys before. I mean, he stood he stood tall, well over six foot, a big heavy guy, and then just got even bigger. Again, in a time where everyone sort of thought that working out was the way to go for athletes. So I, I really don't blame any of us for being fooled there. Because remember, he was a big imposing guy to start with. All right, I'll, I'll let you win that one. <laughs> I, I mean, I still, I still look, you know, it's one of those things that in retrospect, because you're right. I mean, at the time, everybody was caught up in this thing. Everybody was feeling like this is such a great thing. But when you look back and you see how Mark McGuire filled his uniform, you say, now we would be hyper suspicious. We would really be on top of this guy. And especially if you remember how this whole story about the Androstein happened, it was because some reporter saw a bottle of something that said Andro in his locker. There is no chance that today a baseball player or any other athlete would be dumb enough to leave any kind of pills or anything well, around. To his, to his fairness, though, it's because that's that whatever he was taking and was legal. Anything it was is illegal now. What he was doing at the time was allowed. So I don't blame Mark McGuire. I blame the Times. I blame baseball, I, and I, I think baseball kind of knew what was going on with everyone. As, as, and I and I may be a little controversial in saying this, wouldn't be the first time, but I'd like to believe that there is what we call the steroid era in baseball, and and I may be the first, or maybe another person may believe what I believe is that drugs were, have been rampant in sports for many many years. Well, of course they have. And and you know whether it was taking beans or bennies and blue pills to keep up caffeine pills, sports has been run rampant with with some type of mystery pill for whatever you're feeling for many many years, and it's only until attitudes changed. Technology was able to track track whatever you know athletes have been taking, but I think it's more of an attitude change, and that happened sometime in the '90s. Baseball was sort of the first to get burned, and then we, now we're seeing a trickle down effect that's even gone down to the CFL, where athletes are being finally tested for performance enhancing drugs. So, to me, some of the greats of the game, and I, I can't name them all, in all sports, I believe have been taking some type of pills. Let me just say one thing. When you said the blue pills, I don't think if you, you want to be taking blue pills before some sort of professional sports game, that's going to be more uncomfortable and distracting than well, look, helping your new, performance. Today's new blue pills. <laughs> oh, maybe. Okay. Hey, let's jump to another big guy who is suddenly now on the baseball diamond. And this is a puzzler to me because I'm talking about Tim Tebow. He was signed by the New York Mets to a minor league contract today for just a little bit of money. He's not, he's not making a ton of dough on this. He wants to get in baseball and make it to the major leagues. Here's the thing I don't understand, Bob. We have endless stories of athletes misbehaving, getting arrested, getting suspended, on and on and on. And then you have Tim Tebow. You have a guy who apparently never does anything wrong. He pays for and sponsors and runs a program to give special needs kids proms all over nor all over the United States. He spends time with fans. He does this and that. And he gets more hate 
than any other athlete that I can think of out there. Why? What is it about Tim Tebow that makes people lose their minds when they will overlook bad behavior in other people? Because we all love to ruin a good story. We all, I mean, you're right. Tim Tebow lives a clean life. He's a, he promotes Christianity. Um, he promotes everything that's good, really. Um, and you're right, has never been in trouble, seemed, uh, seemed to be a great leader with Florida, at Florida as a university quarterback, uh, even in his NFL days. Uh, but I think what put it over the top was the Tim Tebow mania that happened once he became the quarterback with the Denver Broncos and won a playoff game. And this, you know, the Tebow mania, the kneeling, the that, that sort of, took him from one level of a of a great american hero to the next level where i mean it, 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 it i mean it's to the point where that anything the guy does we want to talk about you know he went and played for the jets and then all of a sudden he gets playing for the patriots and and you're right now he wants to play baseball and and you're right we 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 do like to knock down some of these athletes when they're good guys and i think that's again some of this a natural thing that we have in the media and that and that goes beyond sports as well too yeah i just i mean i look at this and i go i just can't remember and maybe there has been i'm sure there has been but i can't remember another athlete that just gets hated for being a good guy as opposed to being hated for being a bad guy i i understand when ray rice slugged his wife on that video i understood the hatred for him from all the people on social media and everywhere else because that was logical that made sense sure sure but Honestly, you go on Twitter and you do a comparison, if it was possible, of hateful and mean-spirited and snarky comments, and I bet you Tim Tebow outnumbers Ray Rice in the snarky well, two to one. You know, I mean, Scott, he's a good-looking guy. He's got the good body, the cleft chin. I mean, he, he you know, he's kind of in a mold of Tom Brady, obviously not the, the winner that Tom Brady is on the football field, but when Tom, people want to knock Tom Brady because he's married to the, he, you know, people call him the golden boy. He's married to a beautiful uh, Giselle. Italian wife. Uh, I mean, he's got it all, right? And Tim Tebow kind of has it all in some ways, too. And, and many of us, I think, even in the media, get jealous of guys like that. So and it's I jealousy. Have, it's jealousy. It's jealousy. I mean, is it anything more than that? I mean, because you're right. What has Tim Tebow done to offend anyone? Exactly. Exactly. I, I just, it's always struck me as an oddity that this guy has fomented so much bad feelings, it seems, and I've never understood. And maybe that's exactly it. Maybe it's just jealousy because, you know what, we can never be as good as Tim Tebow, so let's just rip him for it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know, but it's today. I will, say, I will say, I will say, and this is, a, I mean, maybe not so much in Canada, but in ESPN, the, the, the worldwide leader in sports, as they like to dub themselves, because of what was going on with the Tebow mania and the fact that he was going from team to team, um, he had built up a reputation for himself as a winner, as I said, at Florida University, that I think people just got fed up with the coverage. And anytime we over-treat an athlete in terms of media coverage, it is easy to sometimes just get fed up of an individual. Fair enough. No, that, and, and you know what? I think that part is true. And I think that part is true. It, it doesn't really uh, explain why everybody gets so bent out of shape even before all this stuff. But okay, let, let's let's we'll leave it there because I want to move on. I got some other things, but that's a good point. What did you think of Monday of the Labor Day doubleheader concept down at Tim Hortons Field? What, what were your thoughts on on how? It went. Was it a complete 100% success or was it a 50% success? What, what, what did you see? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I could, I could not be there for the entire. I guess would be an eight, nine hour event of the day. So I missed the university game, the McMaster game, full knowing that I, I thought it was nearly impossible, even though it was an upset sort of weekend in the OUA, that that the Toronto was going to knock off Mac. So I figured if there was a game to miss, it was going to be this one. Um, but I think any time you can have synergy between the OUA, in fact, the CIS and the CFL, I think it's a winning situation. Uh, you throw in a little rock concert. People that have never seen a McMaster f- football game would never make the trip down to McMaster, probably took in this game, saw a winner, uh, a team that plays well, a spread, wide-open style of offense, exciting, great athletes, a team that compete, can and will compete for the Yates Cup and quite possibly maybe, if the right things happen, play for the Vanier Cup that will be played right here in Hamilton. So it was, I thought, a nice little preview to people that might not be exposed to the, to the university game. And, of course, I mean, it's, I mean, it's impossible not to be able to sell the Labor Day Classic between the Argonauts and the Tiger Cats. And then the game turned out to be a wonderful, high-scoring CFL, at least what I remember the CFL used to be like in terms of high-scoring. Exactly. So, no, that, that's the biggest part about this is you know, that, that you had a game that actually was a throwback to the CFL when the CFL was at its most exciting. Absolutely, and and uh, you know, so I, I thought it was a winning situation. I'd be disappointed and bummed if they didn't do the same thing next year, and and and, and the year after that, and the year after that, because I think it's a if there's any city in in southern Ontario, especially. Uh, or at least on the east side here, that that could do something like that. I think Hamilton's the best place to host a, a sort of university CFL doubleheader, and and, and I think that's. A, I hope I hope that they did well at the gates, and, and I mean we did a report here at CHCH, and it seemed like that the merchandise was flying off the shelves for both teams. So that that's a good thing. Yeah, you know what? You know what the other city is that could actually do this and should do this is Montreal. With the University of Montreal being as You're strong right. as they are, with Laval playing on Labor Day, you could have a, you you could actually set up a really good thing across this country with this Labor Day thing that the Thai Cats tested. Well, Scott, and, the, the way it's going in Montreal right now, more people might go see University of that's Montreal true. than the, the Alouettes. That's true, and there's a lot of chatter. Well, I'm already starting to hear some chatter that Danny Machocha, who was the former coach of the Edmonton Eskimos, now the head coach of University of Montreal. Is his name is being bandied about as maybe a guy who could step in with the Alouettes at some point before too long. So we will, we will see about that one. Hey, uh, just before I let you go, reports out today that Ricky Ray will not be playing in the follow-up back to the second half of the back-to-back with the Ticats and the Argos because he's got a punctured lung and is out for the year. If well, that's if that's true, the Argos are done, right? I mean, well, they got rid of Trevor Harris; they're done. It's amazing to me. I mean, what a story. I mean, that one came out, I guess, about 4, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock this afternoon, and Herb Zerkowski, I mean, um, of the Montreal Gazette, uh, I mean, there are a few guys more credible than him um, in the in the Canadian Football League, and so I believe this story. Um, I listened to Scott Milanovic talk to the the press after, didn't really reveal anything, said that uh, he'll have to see if Ricky practices tomorrow. He is sore. Uh, he has an upper body injury that he won't just get into. So uh, there's something certainly going on with Ricky Ray. And you're right. If the CFL were to go to the playoffs right now, you'd have the Western crossover situation, and Toronto would not be a playoff team. And I certainly believe that if he is not able to go, because I, I've been, I've kind of knocked Ricky Ray a little bit. I think you've seen some rust. Um, his ability to throw that deep ball in the vertical passing game just isn't there. And he really blew me away 
played with the way he played. He, his performance, especially in that first half against the, the Tiger Cats, was just splendid. He looked really, really good. But he also took some hellacious shots. Well, you wonder. Yeah, because of that, you wonder. Because he looked so good in that first half, and then he fell off in the second half, and you wonder what that, how that game, if that game might have changed if he's not injured and and because clearly it looked like something was really bothering him. Now full marks to the Tie Cats; they played a great second half, but Ricky Ray was not the same guy after the halftime show. Well, they put all kinds of pressure on him. On him, he threw two interceptions, and in in I believe in the second half, mind you, they were tip balls that kind of fluttered up in the air. But yeah, you're right. There was definitely a difference in all aspects of the game for the Toronto Argonauts. They just didn't have that. The, the same gumption, and again, you got to give the, the Tie Cats credit because they came out there with a plan in the second half, and they looked like a, a much better football team and fought back from. I guess they were as deep as twenty-seven-seven and came back to uh, you know to, to really kind of blow away the Argonauts. But at the end of the day, if they don't have Ricky Ray and Dan LaFever, it sounds like could be you know, the former Tie Cat quarterback could be their starter because Logan Kilgore, when Ray went down earlier this year with a knee problem. Logan Kilgore really proved he's not quite ready for prime time in the Canadian game. So maybe even, and I hate to say this, maybe the Argonauts got to start shopping for a veteran quarterback. I mean, Kevin Glenn just got benched in Montreal. Henry Burris, maybe he's not happy in Ottawa. Maybe something's got to be done. That is Bubba O'Neill. Um, now that CHCH is having news back on Saturday and Sunday at 6 and 11, you can see Bubba seven times a week on CHCH. <laughs> he will never take another day off, ever. <laughs> Ever. Till the day he retires, and even then, they'll probably just bring him back to keep working. Bubba, thanks for doing that. I know you're not really doing all that, but... I hope they don't do that to me. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> Bubba, appreciate the time. Thanks. Always a pleasure, Scott. That is, uh, again, that is Bubba. They they are. Their CHEH is bringing back their weekend newscast, which is a good thing. The city needs that kind of thing as well, so... You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let's get to the countdown right now. Tonight... It is the top 10 songs that came with its own or created its own dance move, specific dance move, not just a song that you dance to. There is a specific dance movement or move or something that came along with this song. You'll get what I'm getting at because we start at number 10 and we go back all the way to the 1920s when this was the biggest thing on the planet. It was a little dance and a song, a piece called the Charleston. If you are a certain age, you know what the dance is that goes with that. For a lot of you, you're going, what? There was a dance that went with that? Oh, yeah, there was a dance that went with that. Your grandma and grandpa, some of you, were out there just laying it out on the dance floor doing the Charleston. If you don't know what the Charleston looks like, go look it up. That is number 10 on the list of the songs that come with their own or created their own dance move. Number nine, we go to the 50s. Although this is a song that has been redone endless, endless numbers of times. It's a song that was done originally by Little Eva called The Locomotion. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. 
yeah, the locomotion was covered by dozens and dozens of people. And again, if you don't know what the movements are for the locomotion, it probably just means you're not of a certain age. But those of you who are, you know exactly what to do. Number eight on the list. This is a little bit different. This is one that the song was around for quite a while. And it didn't really have a dance or something you did with it until it appeared on the soundtrack to the movie Animal House. And it was played by the band during the toga party. And then from then on, everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to do with this song. Uh, This one would be number eight on the list by Otis Day and the Knights, a song called Shout. You know you make me wanna If you've seen the movie, or if you've ever been to a frat party, <laughs> probably the frat party is a better guess. Uh, you know how to do that one. Number seven on the list. Now, if you grew, if you were born in the '60s or around there, if you grew up in the '70s, if you were at your school dances or whatever else in the '70s, you will know how to do this one. You may want to stand up for this one, if, especially if you're a child of that era, because you want to get in, get into number seven on the list by Van McCoy, The Hustle. If you were an adult or close to it when that song was on the radio and in clubs and everything else, I know you were doing it right then. Number six, we jump way up. This this next one, probably, give or take, this one, give or take, was probably out in, I don't even know what year, but five years ago, maybe four years ago. It's very recent. But again, uh, if you, most people know this one, most people can picture exactly what you're supposed to do. Go to any club now. If this song comes on, I guarantee you, everybody is doing the motions, the actions when this com- song comes on. It's from our favorite South Korean singer, Psy. It's Gangnam Style.
That is Psy with Gangnam Style. Again, if you if you know the song, you were probably doing your horseback riding, galloping kind of thing along with that one. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, you don't know what I'm talking about. But everyone else, you will know what that one was all about. That takes us to number five. We're coming into the top five. Now, I'm not going to play a ton of this next one because it's a kind of a long, repetitive, not very exciting necessarily part of the song. But when you see the video now, everybody knows what you're supposed to do when Michael Jackson's Thriller gets to this part. You know, the zombie dance. Michael Jackson with the red jacket on, looking like a zombie, and the whole group behind him. Yeah, you know that one now. Number four on the list, again, we're going to go way back now. So if you have been listening to the last few saying, what in the world are you talking about? Well, we're coming back into your wheelhouse. If you are knowing the last few, this next one may not be as familiar to you. One way or another, though. I would argue that this is probably, I'm a little surprised this is as low as it is on the list because I would argue this is arguably one of the most well-known dance moves. You hear this song come on, there is absolutely no question. And it's seemingly, even if you were not of the era when this song would have been on the radio, you know exactly what you're supposed to do when Chubby Checker comes on with the twist. Put this one on at a wedding and everybody, no matter what age they are, immediately knows how to do the twist. I don't know. It's like, it's like a spider somehow spontaneously knowing, intuitively knowing how to make a web. You put on the twist at a wedding and everybody of every age knows how to do the twist. I don't understand it, but it, it, it's true. Put it on. Try it. Any age, they will do it. Take us to our top three now. Number three on the list. Now this one, it, it's a little bit different because this one doesn't actually have a song in the same way or a dance move in the same way, but put this one on somewhere and I guarantee you that as soon as it gets to a certain point of the song or at least anywhere in the song, somebody is going to be doing the John Travolta point to the ceiling, other hand on the hip move from staying alive. Right there. 
If you're not pointing at the ceiling with one hand, down to the hip, up to the sky, pointing at the hip, up to the sky, everyone's doing it. Again, go to a wedding. There's always the guy who's going to do it first, and then other people will get will say, okay, he's doing it, I'll do it. That is number three. Number two on the list of the top ten songs that you have a dance built in with, that comes with a dance move, takes us to one of the great, or at least the most popular cult movies of all time. And again, go to a university frat house, go to a dance, go anywhere. This song gets to the chorus. Every single person is following the instructions and doing exactly what the singer is telling you to do. It comes from a movie called The Rocky Horror Picture Show, and the song is called The Time Warp. Tap dancing isn't actually part that you would do at your at your party, but yeah, the uh, the time warp from Rocky Horror Picture Show, one of the all time classics as far as dancing along with the song. So let's break down what we've got. The ten because number one is all that's left. Number ten was the Charleston. Number nine, the locomotion. Number eight, shout. Number seven was the hustle. Number six was Gangnam Style. Number five, Thriller. Number four was The Twist. Number three was Staying Alive. Number two was The Time Warp. So that leaves we get, means we got one song left for the top ten songs that come with its own dance move. Any guesses at all what this one might be? Any guesses at all what song is played at every single wedding and every single person on the dance floor gets up and every single person does the hand motions that spell out four letters called Y... M C A. Young man, there's a place you can go. I said, young man, when you're short on your dough, you can stay there. And I'm sure you will find many ways to have a good time. It's fun to stay at the Y M C A. It's fun to stay at the Y M C A. They have ever. I am sure that if you were to travel to sub-Saharan Africa and go out into the bush somewhere where they have never actually had contact with the Western world or electricity and you fired up your ghetto blaster or your whatever you want to do, that's my time frame, right? It's a reference. Uh, put on that music. There will be people who will suddenly inexplicably do hands up. Why? They will. This song, everybody knows YMCA. So that is number one on your list of these songs that come with a dance move, and what else could it be? You know, we always do honorable mentions, sort of, or I guess things we thought should be on the list. I'm surprised the Macarena wasn't on the list. Yes, uh, that that should have been there. You're right. And what? and a personal 
favorite. Uh, Can't Touch This by MC Hammer for the Hammer Dance. That's, uh, I, I just love that, and I think it should be on there. Yeah, and you know what? There were other suggestions. There were other honorable mentions. Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bangles sure. and, and some other ones. But yes, the Macarena. Uh, I think the only reason Macarena was not on there is because actually everyone gets driven crazy by that one. Not that they don't get driven crazy by some of the other ones that are on here. Gangnam Style falls into that. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you ever want to see something, by the way, we've got to go to break. If you ever want to see something truly halfway between awe-inspiring and frightening, go on YouTube and look for the video of Psy. It's P-S-Y doing Gangnam Style in South Korea. He went back to Seoul. There are, it looks like, about 300,000 people in the town square, and they're not singing his song back to him. They are screaming it back as some sort of almost religious cultish homage You look at this and you go, yeah, you know what? If I ever entered a cult, I think that's what it's going to look like. And then, of course, they all do the dance because that's what this song is about. It's doing the dance. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.